Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 20. Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, uh, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, Gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them uh, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and, and I saw the souls of those who had been uh, beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found, written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. We are a gathered people in the city for the renewal of all things, and we are united under the common narrative, which is... Oh man, I just love that phrase and I'll tell you why here in a minute. And we seek to be unified in living out the Romans 12 ideal and the ethical outworking of this through um, abiding with zealous devotion, serving with sincere love and remembering with humble peacemaking where we have spent the first half of this year going through all of these values. We're halfway through the year already. And as we've talked through remembering with humble peacemaking, we've sought to see how remembering helps us weave meaning throughout our abiding and serving, stitching together a fuller picture of God's calling on our lives as Romans 12 people. And we know that this is the fight of our lives to stay on course and not to drift toward our selfish desires and our cultural narratives. We get distracted by things of the world, misplacing our identity and and purpose. And we've said and will continue to repeat that remembering is the powerful antidote to drifting. It reorients our minds and our hearts back to the love and mission of the kingdom as we remember God's nature, as we remember God's word, and as we remember his work. And so what remembering does is that it secures our hearts in the knowledge of his nature and what he has done. Remembering then becomes an art of constant reflection and practice. Similar to what Mel was saying uh, as, as she was passing the peace. To behold Jesus, to see Jesus uh, causes us to be like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And it influences our actions and it draws us back to his mission. A heart that remembers is a courageous heart equipped to disarm one of the most, uh, one of the enemy's most powerful tactics. It is not to make you believe that there is no God, but it, his most powerful tactic is to get you to believe or, or distract you into forgetting about him. And so I hope, honestly, that as we've journeyed through this year, and more importantly, or more specifically, as we've journeyed through this third ethic that uh, you have taken the call we sensed the Holy Spirit place on us and call out to us to remember the Lamb. And I hope that you've taken that seriously and with sobriety. Because in this series, 
Remember the Lamb? We've endeavored to go through Revelation to see how Jesus defeats evil both in the seen and in the unseen. We've been challenged to remember that the way of the Lamb is the way of peace, not a way of war, but it's a way of peace that destroys evil, redeems the world, and calls us to reign with him. And all of it, honestly, all this entire series leads to today. And what we'll see is how Jesus Jesus' perfect justice triumphs over evil and following his ways then has implications for the way that we live in society, the way that we relate to others and the way that we deal with injustice. And we've, I want to remind you now that we've come to the end of this series in particular, three hopes. Our first hope has been, will be, and is today that our eyes would be open to the spiritual realities of injustice. Not physical realities, but spiritual realities. That we would come to see and know Jesus' righteousness that sets all things right, and that we would step into our call as peacemakers to live in the way of peace. Now, I want you to know that one of, the, uh, one of my most favorite topics to talk about in all of scripture is about Jesus' coming. Now, before stepping into the text today, I'm gonna give you some things that I'm not going to do today, okay? I'm not going to address end time structures or theories or theologies in detail. Oh man, that's not for today. Uh, And here's the truth, that there is a lot of debate uh, over our text today about Jesus's return. There's a lot of ink that has been spilled, that has been used up to try to describe what it is that is happening, not just in Revelation, but to piece together and weave together all of what scripture has to say about his return. And all of these structures, let me be clear, and all of these theories have been all developed by well-meaning godly men and women who have dedicated their lives to studying scripture and based on their conclusions they and those that believe their ways of interpreting revelation live their lives according to the structure theory that they believe and i hope today to not make much of structures or theories but to make much of Jesus and his perfect justice that triumphs over evil. That's my hope for today. So here's my outline. I'm not gonna, I forgot to uh, put a slide up, but here's my outline. Number one, Jesus is reigning. Jesus destroys evil and Jesus executes judgment. Jesus is reigning. Jesus destroys evil and Jesus executes judgment. And here's what I'm going to say before you start kind of thinking, oh my goodness, we've gone into the scariest part of all of Revelation. Let me tell you that all three of these things are good news. Y'all ready? Okay. So for the first time since Lauren honestly kicked us off into this or introduced us into this scene with a dragon, a woman and a child in week four of remember and our remember the lamb series. Jesus here is revealed again. 
Now, we've talked about basically the spiritual realities of injustice leading up until now. And Jesus is now being revealed and he shows up on a scene. And here's what I'm going to say uh, uh, very intentionally and also tongue in cheek. What a revelation. Where Jesus thus far has been worshipped and lauded as the lamb that was slain in this chapter is now not being revealed as a lamb, but he's being revealed as a king. This revelation is not the lion that was described by one of the elders, nor does he appear as the lamb that had been slain that John saw in chapter five. Jesus is revealed in the middle of chaotic creation, rolling back on, upon itself. Jesus shows up in this uh, picture that John is getting in the middle of a worship service where all of creation, those who have placed their faith in Jesus are singing about the worth and the majesty of God. And Jesus, look at that. Jesus is showing up on a white horse and he's reigning. Yeah. And he's reigning with justice and he comes to earth to judge and wage war. He isn't any different than what has been described of him thus far. In fact, John uses language that we're already familiar to describe Jesus. Faithful and true is how Jesus reveals himself to the church in Laodicea. With eyes like blazing fire is how Jesus reveals himself to Thyatira. With a double-edged sword in his hand is how he reveals himself to Pergamum. And the king, this king, doesn't have ten crowns like the beast, nor does he have seven crowns like the dragon, which are a sign and symbol, we said, of limited power and authority. Jesus shows up as the king who has one head with many crowns, which means that he is not limited by time, nor is he limited in his kingdom many crowns. Think about that. Whenever a king would enter in to conquer land and, and he would destroy that kingdom, he would take the king, uh, the crown of that king and place it on his head to signify and to say there's a new king in town. But Jesus shows up on the scene not to remove a crown off of Satan, the beast or the false prophet. He, he shows up already with many crowns stacked up on his head. What a picture. And then John reveals some names of Jesus. Faithful and true is one of his names. For he is the faithful witness of the Father from beginning to end. We saw in Revelation 1 that Jesus is called the faithful and true witness of the Father. He is faithful to only do his Father's will and was faithful all the way yeah. to the cross. Right. He is true in that he is reliable and that he is genuine. He is, like Coca-Cola, the real thing. love coke he is then he's also revealed as the word of god 
This is a name that was ascribed to him and revealed in John 1.1 and then verse 15. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He is then revealed as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is not my case for or against tattoos. I'm just saying Jesus has one on his thigh. His position is above all rulers and authorities. And he is so secure on his position that he embroiders the name on the robe he is wearing and he tattoos the name on his thigh. The revelation of his name is all overwhelming already. Like when you think about faithful and true word of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it just becomes mind blowing. But even more overwhelming and more mind blowing is if we go back to verse 12 of chapter 19, where John says that his name He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And I know you're asking because a lot of ink has been spilled by commentators. And and what is this name? People that are more biblically versed than you and me, they want to know the answer to this question. What is the name? And the reason why we want to know is to satisfy, honestly, our ambitious hearts. Because there's a, there's a truth about our reality, about who we are, is that we like to name and measure things because if we can name and measure them, then therefore we can control them. And Jesus has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. So Jesus will reign, Jesus is reigning, and Jesus has been reigning. So here's a question. When Jesus shows up on the scene in Revelation 19, what will Jesus do? Look at verse 11. What will Jesus do when he shows up, when he returns? Judges and wages war. Now, pay attention now to the pronoun in verse 11. Who is going to judge and wage war? The pronoun there, yeah, is he, Jesus. Us? No, he. He comes to judge and wage war. Wage war against who? He comes to wage war against the beast the kings of the earth, the generals, their armies, and, their mi- and the mighty. They're all coming against Jesus to wage war against him. Now, we've heard this before. 
In Revelation 16, when the sixth bowl gets poured out, we get a description of demonic spirits coming out of the mouth of beast and the false prophet in the form of frogs that go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the, great, the battle on the great day of God Almighty. What am I talking about? The battle of Armageddon. We, we briefly talked about that. So the battle in Revelation chapter 16 is the battle that is to take place in Revelation 19. And it's the same battle that, that is to happen when Satan gets released and goes out to deceive the nations and all of the earth to gather them for battle in Revelation 20. There's one battle, not multiple ones. It's one. And they're all going to Jesus. And they're coming against the kingdom of heaven. They're coming against King Jesus and all of his people. And here are the descriptions of the battle. I want to read them. Then I saw the beast in Revelation 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worship its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Revelation 20. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What happens Jesus, once and for all, deals with injustice. He deals with the demonic and the physical powers that have no regard for God, that have no regard for life, and that have or, or, or no regard for his kingdom, which is another way of saying that they have no regard for all that is good. Now, pay attention to, ready? Uh, I'm taking you back to grammar class. Pay attention to the subject of the action okay right English teacher who is the one who is to deal with injustice and eradicate evil in a final decisive way Jesus how does he do it is there a bloodbath are there nuclear bombs being dropped are missiles and automatic rifle bullets and unmanned drones controlled by warships at sea flying across the sky while Jesus comes riding in on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth? No. <laughs> what gives? The same word that created the universe and set order to chaos and created you and me delivers the final blow to Satan and his entire kingdom of darkness that is hell-bent on destroying God's kingdom and his people. There is no fight. This is why those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received their mark 
on their foreheads and, and hands show up with Jesus, right? The, the people who give their life to Jesus, they show up, and the way that they show up is that they show up wearing linen. They don't show up with battle armor or army fatigues. They show up wearing linen, white linen at that and they're not riding in to fight. They're riding in to get to be witnesses to Jesus yeah. destroying evil once and for all. That's why they're there. That's why you and me will be there. Hmm. Now, I know what you're thinking with what I just said. When is all of this supposed to happen? Like, Johnny, if I could just get a timeline, because then once I get closer, once I start seeing the signs, then I'm really not going to be apathetic in my walk with Jesus. Now, before I briefly answer this question, I want to acknowledge that there are different backgrounds that are represented in this room. Some of you grew up in church like me and have grown uh, and have some understanding of end-time prophecy found in Scripture, and you immediately enter into this moment with presuppositions about what it is that, should, that I should say or maybe should happen. There are all those of you who, when the topic of end-time prophecy came up, you tuned it out for reasons that I'm not trying to guess and simply don't know what all is at stake. Lastly, there are those who didn't grow up in church and have not heard any sort of biblical teaching on this. Wherever you may be, let me uh, allow me to say that it's important for you to know prophecy related to the coming of Jesus because it has implications on the way that you live your life today. Yeah. Yeah. Right here, right now. Okay. You tracking? Yep. Now, yes. I believe and I want to submit to you that scripture most consistently teaches that the defeat of Satan and his kingdom, along with the injustice and sin of the world, will once and for all be dealt with upon Jesus's return. Yeah. Period. The millennium reign of Jesus that Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 speaks of is not a literal 1,000 year reign, but is symbolic of the time between Jesus' death on the cross and his return. We've heard this before, similar to the 42 months, similar to the seven years or the three and a half years, similar to the 1,260 days, or similar to whenever John uses the phrase a time and times and a half, it is essentially the time that we are living in now. And in case you were wanting to know more details about uh, what it is that I'm saying and you're wanting to kind of really like dive deep into what I, the way that I just summarized that because it's important, um, 
what I did is I just found uh, this particular chapter that was really instrumental in just helping me be able to kind of uh, parse this out. And I would love to share that with you guys so that then you can read it and you can look through the scriptures and follow it along just to see how it has been the most consistent thing that all the writers throughout all of scripture have, have seen and have anticipated the return of Jesus. Got it? Got it. And I want to encourage you to look into it yourself. So, back to my question. When is all of this supposed to happen? When is the second coming of Jesus? When he will destroy Satan, the forces of darkness, along with all evil and injustice. When is all of this supposed to happen? Anybody? We don't know. That's the correct answer. Yeah. A thousand years, again, is not a literal or, or it's not literal or it's not a, like a statistic as we've maintained consistently throughout all of Revelation. A thousand years is symbolic of a significant and unknown amount of time. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, but about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Watch this nor the Son, but only the Father. Hmm. But when He comes, but when He comes, rather, when, when we look forward to His return, because on that day, He will deal with, we actually, rather than trying to anticipate the time or the date, we just truly just live our life in such a way where we're looking forward to his return every single day because on that day he will deal with evil once and for all decisively and swiftly he will usher in shalom Today, whenever we were passing the peace, I went up to Lauren and I went up to Sammy and instead of saying peace, I said shalom because shalom is complete peace. It's complete restoration, not just between us and God, but amongst one another. There's no more evil. There's no more injustice when he comes to deal with it decisively once and for all. And at that time, Jesus will execute judgment. The political power and false religion will be captured alive, is what scripture says. The inhabitants of the earth will be killed with the word coming out of his mouth. And the devil will be thrown, all of them will be thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is Jesus' judgment upon the forces of darkness. That is is why we anticipate his coming. That is why whenever you see injustices all around you, it's why the angels, when the four horsemen were riding out, it's why they cried out, come. And it's why we'll see in Revelation 22 that the spirit and the bride, the spirit and the church say, come. Because when he comes, he will decisively, once and for all, deal with injustice and evil. Hmm. Jesus will also, though, judge every deed you performed in life you lived between the cross and his coming. Now, I want to lean in here a little bit and, and let this be more of a pastoral tone that comes out. 
because I know that the thing that comes up right now is anxiety whenever I say that. You see, Revelation 20, verse 11 through 12 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for the heavens or the earth. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Now, first, notice the throne. There's no rainbow here. There's no rumbling, lightning, or peals of thunder here. It's a great white throne, emphasized by the fact that there is nothing else to enhance it. In fact, the earth and the heavens flee from this throne because they're not needed. This throne is self-sustaining. And Jesus, who we learn, is seated in the middle of the throne. It is Jesus who will judge from his throne. Yeah. Who is judging? Jesus. Who is judging? Jesus. I'm going to ask it one more time, not because <clears throat> I'm trying to pester you or belittle you, but I'm just wanting you to hear that name. Who is judging? Jesus. Remember when we pictured the throne of God before his final wrath was poured out? And we described what we envisioned in that moment. Some of you said loving. Some of you said good. Some of you said kind. But no one said dictator. No one said self-absorbed. No one said malicious. Because it's the same Jesus sitting on this great white throne as was sitting in the other two or three visions of the throne that we got. It's the lamb sitting on the throne. And second, we will all stand before that throne. Every single one of us. Selah. Next, this is a little bit of conjecture, but follow me. It seems like there's a library in heaven that contains the book of your life and the book of all of our lives. There is a book on one of the shelves of God's library that on the spine is written the name Juan de Dios Gonzalez. And in that book, are recorded all of your deeds and all of our deeds and everybody say all of my deeds deeds. every single one of them the good the bad the ugly the private the hidden the open the known and unknown all of our books on that day before the great white throne judgment of God will be opened. (coughs) And I don't know about you, but this gives me calls to pause and tremble at what is found in the book that has my name along the spine. 
but there's good news. We read uh, verse 11 and 12, but then there's this one line in there that contains some good news. And the good news is this, that another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, right when you thought that you were going to receive the probably right judgment that you were probably deserved because of all the things that were written in the book of everything that you have done and that the inhabitants of the earth will receive, Jesus then takes the book of life and he opens it and it's almost as if, this is conjecture, this is not scripture, he places this book on top of your book of deeds. <coughs> and he opens the book of life. And in the book of life, there are also names written in it. And so Johnny steps up to the great white throne judgment. And it's almost as if Jesus reads my entire book to me. But I can almost see that book because my hope and my prayer and everything that I uh, want to continually live my life and why I behold Jesus is because I want him in that moment to open my book and, and for everything that I know that I, where I have sinned against him. There is a red pen. Uh, this is conjecture, y'all. I'm just, just follow me for a little bit. There's a red pen that has crossed out the places where I had turned my back on him. There are places where I did not follow his way and the red ink that is coming out of it is not just any red ink, but it's the blood that, that he spilt and he's crossing it out and then he places his book, a book of life on top of that and he goes through and he gets to the G's hopefully it's alphabetical by last name and he gets to the G's and he says Juan de Dios Gonzalez right when I thought that he was going to give me the judgment that I deserve what he says instead is well done good and faithful servant. What? Are, are you sure, Jesus? Did, didn't you just read me my book of deeds? Well done, good and faithful servant. What do we do with that? What do we do with that knowledge? How does knowing Revelation 19 through 20 say, uh, what, knowing what that says about what happens before God's great white throne judgment, how does that inform the way that we live today? Number one, be ready. Yeah. Be ready. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. I just want to read this to you. At that time, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones, uh, foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. 
And the wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps, and the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they're on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. What is this parable teaching us? It's teaching us to be wise, to be ready for whenever Jesus comes back. What does that mean? It means don't go about your life apathetic to God and his purposes on the earth. Keep your lives full of the oil of God. Keep your lives full of the Spirit of God. Be ready. And the way that we uh, continue to get ready and the way that we Bad English, but the way that we be ready is by beholding him. It's by saying, God, I don't want to be, I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I want to follow you wholeheartedly. The things that you're asking me to either lay down or step into or, or pursue, God, those are the things, your will, your will for my life is what I want to pursue because I want to be ready for whatever you come back. And number two, do as the lamb has done and do as the lamb continues to do. This is another way of saying what we have said this entire sermon series, and that is remember the lamb. The way of the lamb, we have said, is the way of sacrifice It's the way of service. It's the way of death. And we ought to go about on this earth living the way that Jesus did. Be a living sacrifice unto God for the service of others to death. Do you want to see injustice diminished on earth in our, in our time? Because we know that one day Jesus is going to completely and decisively eradicate all of injustice. But do you want to see injustice diminished in our life? Remember the Lamb. Do you want to be a humble peacemaker? Remember the Lamb. And I believe that Scripture says that if we live this way, If we live in such a way, sorry, I just get really excited about this. But if we live in this type of way, we've heard that scripture has said, you do not know the day or the hour. You've heard it said before that he comes like a thief in the night. In fact, Jesus in the, in the last, in last week, he, he, it's like he interjected when the bowls are being poured out and he says, behold, I'm coming like a thief in the night. 
But I truly believe that, and I will show you here, that scripture says that if we live, if, if we are ready and we remember the lamb, then this day will not catch us like a thief in the night. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Don't believe me? 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. Now, he's talking the same thing that we're talking about here today. For you know very well that the day of the Lord, watch this, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Look at verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters is another way of saying, you who have believed in Jesus along with me, therefore making us the family of God, you're not in darkness, so that this day shall surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Now, it's interesting that, that he uses this word sober in there. Now, I was just kind of worshiping there. And, and, and here's, and, and this is just a, a phrase that I believe that the Lord just gave me just in that moment during our time of worship. In other words, we said last week, do not flirt with the world. Yeah. Quit flirting with the world. I believe that this week, what he's saying is, do not get drunk on the world. Stop getting drunk on the world because he's saying uh, and uh, for those who sleep sleep at night for those who get drunk get drunk at night but since we belong to the day let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate remember the lamb and the hope of salvation as a helmet be ready look forward to that day that you will once and for all be saved For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, this is what we mean by remember the land. Therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up. Just as in fact you are doing so what is paul doing here and what do i believe that even john is doing in revelation there's a direct correlation between encouraging one another and building each other up and remembering the lamb and doing those things that to remain in jesus and love him with all of our heart mind soul and strength and his coming not surprising us as a thief So I don't know about you, but what comfort and what hope we have. Keep looking to the lamb as the example of how we ought to live. It is a life of sacrifice. It is a life of service. It is a life of death. But the way to push back against the forces of darkness today is by believing in Jesus and doing what he did and what he asked us to do in this life today. So as we go into ministry time, 
This is what I really want us to really focus on in our time today, is simply to ask the Holy Spirit to get you ready. 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 Are you ready? If not, get ready. If you are, remain faithful. Persevere. Live your life as a living sacrifice. Not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind.